0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Warning, the Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised a path forward for the new right.
2: If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly if you just love this country,
1: fight back and exposing the woke left.
2: What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through.
1: This is the Josh Hammer Show.
2: If there's anyone more important than Chris Rufo for the current state, of the American rights activism, I am not sure who it is. He has made for indispensable reading, indispensable listening, indispensable viewing for the past few years. And I'm also really, really happy about the fact that he has become a friend as well. So we've been looking forward to bringing on Chris Rufo onto this show for a long time now. And Chris has a brand new book out called America's Cultural Revolution. You should go ahead and check it out. Wherever books are sold, there is really no one in America who has been doing the hard-hitting investigative journalism that Chris has been doing for years now. When it comes going back to the Black Lives Matter, Antifa protests of 2020, the spread of critical race theory, gender ideology, DEI, all of these issues that collectively comprise the woke ideology, Chris has been the tip of the spear, the American rights tip of the spear in fighting back against that. So we're really excited to bring on Chris Rufo shortly to join the Josh Hammer show right after this quick commercial
1: break. Josh Hammer show.
2: So we are just thrilled to bring on this week someone who in my estimation is one of the American rights most indispensable assets, one of the most hard-hitting investigative journalists and I speak here of course about Chris Rufo who is a senior fellow and director of the Initiative on Critical Race Theory at the Manhattan Institute. He is also a contributing editor at City Journal, MI's publication, and most important for present purposes, he is also the author of the brand new book, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. Chris, my friend, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's great to be with you. So your book is big stuff, and I, I say that as someone who kind of, you know, pours over a lot of right-of-center material, because you you have been hitting this beat now for for years and years and I keep up very closely with your writing you you know you've done a ton on critical race theory you've done a ton on gender ideology perhaps more recently of late And you've kind of brought it all together. You've brought it all together into this book. So let's start then kind of like at the 35,000 foot altitude level. What is kind of the current that connects all the various strands of Chris Rufo activism? What is it that connects critical race theory to gender ideology? I mean, we're we're talking here about wokeism, of course. So talk us a little bit more about kind of at, at the theoretical level, what ties all these strands together, ultimately leading to this book.
0: You have to think of all these ideologies as tools in the left's quest for power. Um, they aren't ultimate ends. Uh, they aren't you know, rigorous philosophical systems. They are really blunt force objects that are used to beat the institutions into submission. And the basic arc of the story in America's Cultural Revolution is documenting the radical left's 50-year long march through the institutions um, and picking apart these ideologies rationally as, as ideas but also demonstrating how these ideas gain power. Um, Because when you look at the left, uh, a lot of people on the right make the mistake in in thinking that, well, if we can debate these ideas and show that our ideas are better, we'll have won the political game. Um, But what I try to do in the book is to show that uh, you not only have to do that, that's just the very starting point, uh, but you actually have to defeat them at the level of political praxis or political practice, um, and then the institutional politics um, that are now animated by these ideas. And I think that the great symbol was the summer of 2020. That was the first time that most Americans understood uh, that there had been this process of ideological capture. And the goal of the book is to go back and explain exactly how it happened.
2: So the book kind of starts with the Frankfurt School and then kind of builds up until the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer 2020, like, like you said. And, you know, it was actually during those protests that I first came to know you because, you know, uh, Washington State, Seattle, kind of ground zero of much of what was going on during that year. And that kind of leads me to one of my first questions, which is, again, we start with the Frankfurt School, kind of the post-war era, the middle of the 20th century. And we kind of culminate in everything that has happened in the post-George Floyd era So why weren't those of us on the right paying nearly as close attention as apparently we should have been paying in kind of what, those 60-ish years? I mean, between kind of the rise of of campus radicalism and and, and the Frankfurt School metastasis and then skip forward 60 years to the summer of 2020. I mean, what happened, I guess, in those years? Were we just totally dormant and not paying attention?
0: Well, there are really two critical junctures. And the first juncture is... 1972, and that was the year that Richard Nixon was reelected with a 49 state landslide. And even the masters or philosophers of the new left's radical revolution admitted in the year of 1972 that their that their, their movement had been defeated by Richard Nixon. The Black Panther Party was destroyed. The Weather Underground was on the run. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover and Nixon's FBI had dismantled the infrastructure behind the radical organizations. Even the New York Times uh, was mocking and laughing and and condescending to the left-wing radicals, saying that they were a spent force. And so that was the first thing, that there was this impression that it had been defeated. The second key juncture is 1989 or 1991, depending on how you look at it, um, the defeat of Soviet communism as a global force. Conservatives and, and liberals and even center-left uh, uh, thinkers really made a mistake in thinking that, um, you know, this is uh, the, the end of the, the historical process of communism. It's been exposed as a human disaster and it will never rise again. This is the, the end of that uh, way of life or that, that ambition. And so conservatives and, 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 you know, kind of classical liberals went to sleep. There was no need for a McCarthy or a Hoover or a Nixon or even a Reagan anymore. Um, we had entered into this kind of period of the 90s and 2000s where our focus was elsewhere. But uh, what, we, what we did not see was that the people who were driven by America's cultural revolution and these ideologies, they never stopped. And in fact, they used this, this period, this multi-decade period of low scrutiny to establish a foothold in all of our institutions to build up their their power intellectually, to build up their power in the education system. And then they felt like in 2020, they finally had their moment to, to in a sense, reveal what they had conquered. And I think it came as a surprise to many people, Um, but for the people who were part of this long march, um, it was really just the culmination of a very long process.
2: How much do you think the Barack Obama presidency specifically had anything to do with, with this? And I ask that because I'm kind of looking at the timeline here. I mean, the 1990s, you know, I was born in 1989, so the 1990s is when I was first paying a little bit of attention, at least towards the end of, of the decade of politics. I mean, Bill Clinton was was many things, but he was actually a fairly centrist Democrat. I mean, you know, this was the Democratic Party of safe, legal, and rare when it came to abortion. They were fairly laissez-faire when it came to economics and and so on and so on, and Then, you know, uh, 20 years after the Clinton presidency is exactly what you just said is the summer of Black Lives Matter, George Floyd and all of that. And the only thing that's in the middle of those 20 years from a Democratic institutional leadership perspective is the Obama presidency. So I'm curious in your research, did you did you feel that much of what was happening from the Barack Obama presidency, Eric Holder as attorney general, all of that, did that kind of play into the the public explosion of this or was that not a huge factor?
0: Yeah, it, I'm, you know, in my reading of it, um, it's actually not a huge factor. And I know a lot of conservatives be kind of surprised to hear me say that, but I, I actually think that Obama, um, if you look at his uh, kind of rhetoric, if you look at his policy priorities, was really about you know, the first two years, of course, achieving you know what they thought of as universal health care. That was an old Hillary Clinton uh, objective, right. I and mean, that was her big policy uh, objective in the '90s. And and I think that he sought to be above the fray uh, for the most part on these issues. I don't actually make, uh, I I, I don't actually, uh, I'm not persuaded by the kind of Dinesh D'Souza case that he was a uh, kind of uh, left-wing black radical driven by, you know, hostility and revenge. I mean, that to me doesn't hold at all. I'm not persuaded by that. Um, I don't think that he drove this ideologically. I don't think that this is his ideology uh, by any stretch, but perhaps uh, what I would say is true is that um, uh, his generation of staff level people um, is driving this ideology and is now driving it for the Biden administration. And so it's this paradox where even Joe Biden, I mean, Joe Biden is, is, you know, Crime Bill Joe. I mean, he's not a, uh, a, you know, kind of a Black Panther Party fellow traveler, but I think he understands and Obama understood that the, the, the energy and the drive in their movement is driven by people who are animated by critical race theory, by gender ideology. And so at the staff level, I think that this is pervasive, even if the great figureheads, um, you know, right. Joe Biden and Barack Obama, I, I don't think are committed ideologues in the same manner.
2: All right, so let's get back to kind of the bread and butter of Chris Rufo issues, if you will. And I, I speak here of, of critical race theory. And one thing that, Chris, that I think you and I have, have both debated in our own capacities is the notion that that outright bans on, on teaching garbage, on, on teaching filth, when it comes to this issue and others, for lack of a better term, are, are is the correct course. I, I mean, it actually just straight up saying you cannot do something within the confines of an, of an educational setting. I know that you've debated that; I've debated that as well. Can you just make that case straightforwardly? I mean, what is kind of your direct response to those who say, oh, you're you're banning books or you're censoring speech? I mean, what what is your basic response to those who say that you're acting like an illiberal authoritarian?
0: Yeah, uh, well, you know, it, it's actually quite the opposite. It's actually liberal and democratic because the public schools are first and foremost, public institutions, meaning that they are governed by the state and and the voters who elect their legislators. And so if voters uh, do not want um false pseudoscientific um uh and 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 kind of agitprop, you know, political propaganda being transmitted through their public institutions, they have every right to vote for legislators who can then pass legislation reforming, uh restraining and improving the curriculum um really to whatever direction they want to do. That's how democracy works. And in fact, the left is anti-democratic in bringing these ideas through the bureaucracy, not seeking or, 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 or gaining the consent of the parents or the consent of the governed, meaning uh, the public through their state legislators. And, you know, schools have a process of curation of content all the time. All of the left-wing schools have it, all of the blue states have it. The states set the curriculum, that's already the status quo. And so conservative governors and state legislators are doing nothing that isn't already being done in a de facto manner in other states. And in fact, it's their duty to make sure that the values and, and, and pedagogies and ideas and principles that are transmitted through the public institutions reflect the best interests, the wishes and the will of the public. Um, this is like the people who have, 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 have disagreed with this are either committed against the ideology. Obviously, there's a reason the left doesn't want that to be, but also people who have experienced a form of uh, kind of temporary or maybe even permanent brain death from ideologies like libertarianism which ends up in this absurd conclusion that the government has a fundamental first amendment right uh, to abuse your kids with uh, you know racial scapegoating and and and, uh, and gender transitions and that the people have no right to to regulate their own government i mean it gets into this absurd position uh, based on these uh, very mistaken uh, libertarian ideas
2: so Speaking of education, this is one issue where you have really focused on. Of course, you've been heavily involved in what is going on here in Florida at New College of Florida, which under the leadership of Governor DeSantis has has really become, I think, one of the right's great experiments in, in institutional recapture. And, you know, I'm curious how your work in New College connects with all of this. I mean, it really does kind of, from my mind, it's a, it's a, it's a seamless connection to kind of this idea of, of recapturing the institutions. I mean, is that, is that how you think of it? And to the extent that you can speak about it, I'm curious, is that, is that how the new college leadership top, you know, top to bottom views what is happening there?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it is. So, you know, the, the antidote to America's cultural revolution and the long march of the institutions, um, those public institutions, is to, to recapture them, uh, to, to, to restaff them, bring in new leaders, and then also to reorient them towards the values of the common citizen, of the public, of the legislators who decide the orientation and the ultimate telos or the, the, the ends of those institutions. And so I've been very explicit um, and, and, and in, in a way um, trying to deliver that narrative very openly that this is the process of institutional recapture the governor appointed a new majority of of trustees, including me, to retake this institution, to bring in new leadership and to transform it into a classical liberal arts university that has a wide variety of opinions, that has a a strong contingent of uh, conservative faculty members to provide balance with the uh, more liberal and left-wing faculty members. And then to have a curriculum, a core curriculum, a great book style curriculum, that transmits uh, 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 the the values of voters who elected these legislators um, uh, into the institutions and therefore uh, to the students who attend the university. And this is not just the right thing to do um, morally, politically, you know, philosophically, but it's also very popular. We actually have had uh, news just recently that we'll have the largest incoming class in new college's history, despite all the turmoil of leadership change. And so, The people of Florida, the families in Florida are sending a signal. We like the new, new college. We want to send our kids to the new, new college. We're finally grateful to have an opportunity where uh, we're not just sending them to, you know, DEI University anymore. We can actually have a great book style curriculum um, as part of our public education
2: options. No, it's really it's really admirable. I mean, it is frankly just admirable. I think what you and the, and the others are doing a new College of Florida. It's also just common sense. I mean, to me, this idea that taxpayer funded public institutions should not reflect the values of the people, I, I find that utterly absurd. Um, I, I just I just find that frankly just utterly mind blowing. And one kind of related question that I would love to get your thoughts on kind of pertains to this notion of of, of academic freedom which is a term that I kind of have a love-hate relationship with. On the one hand, it is obviously imperative because you don't want people to have to kind of self-censor. You don't want them to have to kind of check their language or their research or anything. On the other hand... It does kind of play into this paradigm of, of libertarianism, of, of kind of liberalism taken to an extreme, and you get so detached from exactly what you and I are talking about here, which is this idea that we, the people, should actually control the values that are instilled, to use the term that you just use, and which I also frequently use, the telos of what the system of higher education should be. So I, I'm curious how Chris Rufo views the, the concept of academic freedom, because like I said, I kind of go back and forth on it myself.
0: Sure. I, I mean, well, well, first of all, we have to understand that academic freedom does not apply in any way to university administration. Um, you know, university uh, DEI bureaucrats do not have academic freedom because they're not academics, they're administrators. Um, and, and second of all, um, the university has the, the kind of plenary power to shape uh, the offerings the courses, the majors, the departments. Um, and just because uh, let's say radical left uh, gender theorists um, have first amendment rights, of course, and, and they wanna have you know, departments, um, they're not entitled to that. They're not entitled to taxpayer funded gender theory departments and administrators who determine that they're of low scholarly value, um, that they do not fit in with the mission of the university are fully entitled to abolish those departments altogether. That's not an academic freedom question. That's an administrative question. Then if you get into professors' individual research, scholarship, and classroom expression, I think that there's a strong argument, and and I support the argument, that they should be entitled to some autonomy. They should be entitled to academic freedom, meaning that um, you know that uh, the administrators should not meddle in the research uh, decisions um, uh, uh, or, or or the specific you know words that they use in the classroom I, I'm, I'm i'm amenable to that but we should recognize that that's not a a, a, a kind of plenary or unlimited first amendment right um, these are still public employees they have to they have to kind of do their official duties in, in the public and i think that the, and you could tell me even more as an attorney, but the Ceballos versus Garcetti standard um, sets reasonable restrictions. Um, and, and, and what's certain is that um, you know, college, public university college professors are absolutely entitled to their First Amendment rights as individuals. Or actually, they, they, are, they have uh, the right to the First Amendment expression as individuals, but they're not entitled to a permanent and unlimited state subsidy. Uh, for that expression as part of their official duties. And so these are constitutional questions that I'm excited to see litigated in the courts. But the basic bottom line is this, the public gets to decide what the public institutions do. And the autonomy that's been granted to universities is a privilege, not an inherent constitutional right. And now we're renegotiating the specifics of that. And so we need to renegotiate the relationship of the institutions to the people. And ultimately the people are the authority, not the DEI bureaucrats.
2: Oh, it's well said. I mean... and it's not it's actually not just public institutions i mean you know we just we just saw the affirmative action case at harvard college which which maybe we'll get into here in a little bit but you know any institution that takes public funding becomes under our current supreme court case law subject to the 14th amendment's equal protection clause so it's a, it's actually to an extent not just the public universities but 100 percent the public universities and again I, I just genuinely think what you guys are doing at new college of florida is simply admirable so let's do a, a very quick commercial break stay with us we're with chris rufo talking about his brand new book america Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. Stay with us.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe, now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. The Josh Hammer Show.
2: So Chris, let's dive right back in where we left off. Let's talk about the affirmative action case and where we go from here, perhaps more importantly. So we had these massive cases at the Supreme Court last term eradicating what I have kind of cheekily referred to as the last actual vestige of systemic racism in America, which is affirmative action in, in university admissions. And then the question is where we go from here and i i think the obvious answer and you kind of end your book uh, or at least you you almost end your book with a chapter on dei which is actually the the topic of, of my most recent column as well so is is eradicating dei in academia and the corporate sphere the obvious next step towards opposing race consciousness and kind of race neutrality and colorblindness is is that where we go after affirmative action
0: yeah yeah, I, I, and that's where, that's, that's certainly, that, that's been my big campaign uh, this year. And uh, I wrote a policy paper for legislators to abolish the DEI bureaucracy in public universities. Um, Governor DeSantis helped launch that campaign. Uh, he got it through the legislature, signed, sealed, and delivered. Um, that is now policy in the state of Florida. Shortly after, um, Texas legislators abolished the DEI departments and their state universities um, and we need to see this really throughout all of the sectors. And I'm also pleased to say, according to recent Wall Street Journal reporting, um, corporate DEI offices have been decimated with layoffs, hiring slowdowns, um, you know, 75% less demand uh, for chief diversity officer compared to the recent past. And so we're, we're really moving the needle on that because these are uh, kind of racial commissar positions. Yep. They don't add to the scholarship of university. They don't add to the productivity of a corporation. They're purely uh, designed to transmit race ideology. Um, and so they need to be abolished, um, uh, you know, kind of buried and salted over uh, permanently. But I think the next step, and i, I really really curious to hear your thoughts about this, about the feasibility, is to figure out how to get rid of Griggs versus Duke Power Company, which established uh, the kind of jurisprudential basis for disparate impact doctrine, which in practice means that any racial disparities are treated as evidence of, of of racism as the causal force. That's unleashed so much of this kind of legal and bureaucratic regime, um, where 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 everything is considered racist until until proven otherwise. And so. To me, on the legal front, and i'm curious to hear your comments, that seems to me the next uh, the next case to go after
2: no Griggs is, Griggs is a good one to go after, and frankly, a lot of lawyers forget about it, so it's actually very it's great that you're flagging it. I mean I remember reading that case back in law school, so dis, you know disparate impact doctrine is what you just said it is it's this notion that because some neutral policy results uh, in different racial or or ethnic or whatever subcategories happens to disproportionately it, then that is kind of ipso facto. You know evidence of racism, and you know Eric Holder ran with this when he was Barack Obama's Attorney General when it came to kind of housing and HUD and, and low income housing. It's it's a horrible case, and it, it's 100 percent something that we should overturn. And I, I frankly think this current court, as presently structured, I, I tend to be pretty pessimistic about the Supreme Court in general. But at least in the aftermath of the affirmative action cases, you, you kind of have to like our odds of overturning Griggs, assuming that the right litigator manages to bring a somewhat sympathetic case before the court. So definitely definitely look forward to that. So Chris, I want to kind of zoom out a little bit here and kind of go back to what we were talking about towards the beginning of the interview, which is about kind of the Frankfurt School and this notion of of, of counter-revolution. And one thing that I am also torn on, I guess I'm torn on a lot of things these days, is whether or not the term conservative is even applicable anymore for what the right, when it comes to the task in front of us in the year 2023, is even equipped to do. On the one hand. I'm a research fellow of the Edmund Burke Foundation. I love Edmund Burke. I love old school conservatism and all that. On the other hand, I I strongly agree with you that the actual concrete task of the right in the year 2023 is something much more closely approximating counter-revolution. And I'm I'm not sure how to, I'm really not sure how, if at all, to synthesize those two competing strands of thought. So, would you call yourself a conservative? Is that term even applicable to right-of-center activists in America in the year 2023, or, or is it no longer meaningful?
0: So I, I call myself a conservative um, merely as a functional signal for uh, for alliances, in a right. sense. So I call myself a conservative because people immediately say, okay, you know, the, Rufo is aligned with the conservative movement, he's aligned with the conservative uh, cause, and that it gives people a very easy way um, just to, to to kind of slot me into a functional political coalition. I found that to have the most utility, meaning it helps me achieve my, my political goals. Um, uh, and so I use it in that way. But, you know, kind of put an asterisk by it because it, in, in, in no sense am I temperamentally or even politically a small C conservative um, because I seek uh, more radical changes and certainly more aggressive strategies than merely the conservation of, uh, you know, existing institutions that, rep, that, that comprise the status quo. And so I think that in some ways uh, I would identify, uh, <laughs> to use a great, uh, great verb uh, that, that, that's taken on a new meaning lately, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, would, I would call myself uh, uh, a counter-revolutionary. And that, that term is also quite fun to use because it's been a dirty word ever since Marx. I mean, Marx used it as an epithet, um, you know the Chinese communists used it as a, as an epithet and 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 kind of something that was punishable by death. Um, and and but I think it actually is uh, summons the level of uh, kind of activism and political engagement that will be required in order to achieve, in a paradoxical manner, conservative ends. And so conservatism is something that you actually have to 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 fight radically on behalf of. In order to enable conservatism to function again, in its conservative capacity, and so it's this really um, kind of, you know, kind of enjoyable and 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 ironic and loaded set of terms that 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 functions in a quite different way as it might appear, and so. Um, And at the end of the day, though, it's like, I don't care. People call me whatever they want. Right. You know, all of these terms can can, can work. I, I don't get too hung up on it.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's basically exactly how I feel. I, I think to this this phrase that Sirab Sharma, who's the head of American Moment on whose advisory board I said. So Sarab likes, likes to talk about tactical ecumenicism, which it, which is a little wordy, obviously. But it basically means this idea that, you know, we're not Alinskyites mean, we're not pure ends justify the means people. But surely the time is proper to recognize that we need to be a little more prudential and a little more open-minded about which means may be necessary to try to recapture institutions and ultimately secure our ends of, of justice, human flourishing, and really ultimately just salvaging this union. I mean, that ultimately is really what we're trying to do here from the, from the clutches of wokeism and various other subjugationist threats you know, a similar thing, Chris, that I that I think you and I have in common is we've both spent some time over in Hungary, actually, or in the in the past few months. I've actually been there twice over the over the past year and a half. There, I'm curious what your what your, your impressions of your time in Budapest are, and, and and what lessons you think what has happened there may have for for America. And one thing specifically, I would I would love your thoughts on. You know, Prime Minister Orban got in trouble a lot of years ago for using a term in a speech where he referred to kind of his I, I, idea of governance as illiberal democracy so not liberal democracy but illiberal democracy i i i'm i'm not sure that's the the best possible way to to phrase what you and i are kind of getting at here but i'm curious for your impressions on on that phrase and really just kind of your impressions on the hungarian model for institutional recapture in general
0: yeah you know obviously that's a kind of famous phrase from uh p.m orban and i actually went back and read that entire speech to try to understand the context and what I think he's doing rhetorically is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, um, somewhat ironic. Um, and I think it's really just to say that he's contrasting it from the liberal, internationalist, European Union-style order. And he's saying, ah, it's different than that. It's opposed to that. It's, in a way, the antithesis uh, to that spirit. But but I think that it's a rhetorical bad—I mean, not a good move. I think illiberal democracy is, sounds— sounds, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it rings um, in a kind of menacing manner to the ear. And I don't think it's actually representative of what they're doing. I mean, the the, the prime minister is, uh, you know, trying to win votes. And they had predicted a very close election this last time. The opposition mounted a spirited campaign. Uh, the, the, the prime minister, of course, uh, you know, fought for every vote and, and, and managed to win. But the, I have two basic thoughts about Hungary. I spent six weeks there. I brought my whole family. We stayed in Budapest. We traveled around the country. I gave speeches, talked to people. Um, I mean, just a beautiful country, beautiful people, and enjoyed it. And in, in one sense, I, I found that the Hungarians have a very um, realistic um, and, and practical understanding of institutions. And they, they, they have a vision for the administration of those institutions according to their values and according to the values of their voters. And they're unapologetic in pursuing um, that kind of institutional reform, because of course they inherited institutions that were shaped by Soviet communism. Right. And so I am very sympathetic to that. I've I've learned in a tactical manner. Um, uh, I think some some interesting lessons that that might be transposable back uh, to American institutional politics. But I would put a large caveat because um, America is a liberal democratic country has been for uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know many 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 years uh, you know 250 years more or less. And uh, Hungary, by contrast, was really never a liberal democratic country. Um, it was an, an, an empire, it was ruled by a king, it was ruled by foreign invaders. Right. It had kind of a brief little period of semi-liberalism, but really not. It was like kind of a holdover from communist times. And so we are a large country that's a liberal democratic country that has certain sets of, 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 of kind of uh, um, ideas and principles. It's very different. In a way, Orban is, is governing in a kind of liberal democratic fashion, but also a very Hungarian fashion uh, of administrative rule um, that isn't directly transposable to what we're doing today. So I think that while I enjoyed my time and I certainly made some friends and and uh, and, and love the country, I would be very um, hesitant to say that there are great lessons to bring back. And I certainly don't believe that any of the American you know, leaders or governors, and Governor DeSantis uh, you know, is, is kind, kind of tarred with this, are urbanist in any real sense. I, I don't think of anyone that I know in the DeSantis administration that that, that even thinks about Hungary or Victor. I mean, it's like, it, right. it's totally uh, out of left field. Um, um, so so I, I think that we have to be kind of cautious and serious in how we, we think about those lessons.
2: Yeah, I think that's well said. and. The one thing that I do really respect about what Fidesz, which is Orban's party in Hungary, with what they're doing is they are... They are unafraid to actually use political power, which is something that I think Republicans and people on the right in general in America are far too reticent and and reluctant to get into. Governor DeSantis, of course, is is not reluctant to actually wield the levers of power uh, within the confines of prudence, obviously, which is one thing that I think you and I both very much admire about him. But but I agree with you. I think that Hungary is just so different in so many ways that we should be very cautious at a bare minimum about the kind of lessons that we're trying to bring back here. So, Chris, uh, one, one perhaps final thing here, because I know you're doing all these interviews and I, I, I want to l- let you go at some point, but what is, when it brings us back home to kind of the, the threat of the woke ideology on the home frontier, which really is kind of the current that runs throughout your entire book, the current most pressing th- woke threat? Uh, we talked about DEI. We haven't really touched much on the, on the transgender fad, which you've done a ton of reporting on recently. A lot of whistleblowers have been coming to you when it comes to the perils of chemical castration, quote unquote, gender affirming care. You know, I'm not asking you to necessarily choose between DEI and, and kind of the gender ideology craze, but what, what is the biggest threat or are the very biggest threats at this present moment when it comes to this spread of leftist illiberalism and wokeism in America?
0: Yeah, we're, we're actually at an interesting moment in the debate. I think that the end of 2020 and the beginning, and certainly all of 2021, critical race theory was the focal point of the debate. I mean, without a doubt, it had tremendous energy. Um, I think that the kind of trans cluster of issues um, uh, was, has, has been kind of rising, although I don't think it's actually crescendoed into a kind of furious and decisive uh, part of debate. Um, and then DEI has been really a kind of policy matter um, uh it hasn't turned into this high energy all-consuming public debate um, and so we're in a bit of flux right now um, we're in a state that is uncertain the energy has not reached a focus in any one area so i think that conservatives need to be ready to fight on all these issues and we need to try to drive uh kind of narratives into our opponents uh, uh, intellectual territory in order to 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 drive them into successful um, kind of polarized and 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 partisan and decisive debate Um, and so conservatives should be ready they should understand everything and while we're in this maybe lull in a sense i certainly recommend that they um, pick up a copy of america's culture revolution which debuted at the number one bestseller spot on amazon uh, earlier this week because you'll get a sense of how all these ideas fit together um, how they gain power and how they can be defeated within the institutions and so My sense is that this is going to really heat up as the primary heats up and then, of course, as the general election heats up. So um, I'm feeling like the book is perfectly positioned to to give everyone who reads it really a, a kind of six month head start intellectually on where the country and where the debate will be going.
2: So, uh, I was planning on ending on that note, but I feel compelled to now ask one short follow up question, if you, if you don't mind. Which is, we're talking, you know, you're talking there by the presidential primary heading into the general election here. There's been a debate, really, within I think the, you know, the Trump Desantis kind of proxy war, social media keyboard warriors, and really kind of just the broader commentariat, especially the right of center commentary. There's been this debate as to whether anti wokeism. Is is viable enough as a Republican message? I mean, it, can that be the glue that holds the American political right together, or or something more needed? Perhaps a little more kind of economic oriented something. Like, so how do how do you how do you answer that question? Do you think that anti wokeism is sufficient as the right's kind of political message and vehicle in the year twenty twenty three?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's necessary, but but not sufficient because uh, you know from my perspective, it's what I work on every day, and it's 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 you know my most important set of issues. Um, But what I think that you need to do is pair that kind of anti-woke message campaign and policy with also a positive vision for the country. Because ultimately voters say, you know, who's not only going to defeat the things I don't like, but who's also going to deliver the things that I do like? And so it has to be paired with a positive governing vision. And it has to be paired with what DeSantis has really done in Florida which is provide economic growth, provide opportunities, provide better education, provide uh, you know a better state budget, all of those um, kind of kitchen table issues and good governance issues. And so y- you have to do both. But I would also say, and this is an interesting thing, I, I actually don't, you probably noticed, I don't really wade into the influencer war. Uh, it's not really my bag. Um, but But what I would say is that what's getting obscured in all this is you know, we're not debating, uh, you know, is Trump anti-woke or is DeSantis anti-woke? I think they're effectively both, uh, you know, anti-woke. And I don't think voters are assessing them on the, that grounds. And so I don't think that it's that, you know, Trump is up big in the primary polls because Republican voters don't like DeSantis's anti-woke message. That, that to me is an argument I've seen that doesn't hold any water. I think it's that Trump has um, the tr- incredible allegiance um, and personal allegiance from a large part of the republican base roughly let's say 50% now but i think hardcore you know about a third and so i think the question for the governor who i support and i and i and i and i believe that you support as well yep. is is that uh, he's got to figure out how to uh, distinguish himself create those contrasts with president trump former president trump but also not alienate uh, the the people who are really kind of hardcore uh, Trump supporters. And so, um, you know, I, that's a job I don't envy. I right. mean, he's a great uh, he's a great governor. But this is going to be a rhetorical task that is going to be very uh, challenging. And so um, I know he has smart people around him. I mm-hmm. know he is, you know, brilliant. So I, I hope he manages to thread the needle. And if there's anyone that can do it, I think it's him. So. Um, I'm excited to to, to see where he takes it.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree with literally everything you just said. I mean, this is an incredibly difficult needle to thread. Uh, If there's anyone who can do it, it probably is him, but he's trying to do I think exactly what you just said he's trying to do, which is to run as as the logical successor of the American right, the inheritor of this movement. He's not trying to run, obviously, as an anti-Trump candidate. He's not anti-Trump. Governor DeSantis, when he was congressman, Ron DeSantis, was literally one of the most open defenders of Trump during kind of the throes yeah. of, of the Russia Gate collusion delusion, which is kind of ironic, obviously, given what a lot of his keyboard warriors are, are, are now saying about him and all this other utter garbage. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. But like you, I I have been very explicit about my support for Governor DeSantis, whose leadership I have very tangibly benefited from being a Floridian. It it has made my life. So it it actually was really a huge part of the reason why I moved here in the first place in the the summer of 2021, like so many others did. He really has been a transformational figure. And Chris, you obviously have had no small role to play in his leadership with your activism in Tallahassee and of course, a new college of Florida and others. So thank you, of course, as a Floridian for your service to Florida, which is not your state, but a state that perhaps you have adopted of, of, of sorts. And I think many Floridians are extremely grateful for that. So, you know, once again, Chris Rufo's new book, which is number one ranked book that I can tell on Amazon elsewhere is America's Cultural Revolution, how the radical left conquered everything. Go ahead and pick it up wherever you get your books. Chris, you're a friend. And like I said, you're an indispensable asset to this movement. So I appreciate you stopping by this week. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Josh. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Josh Hammer Show.
2: So I can't emphasize this point enough. If by some small chance you are not already following Chris's work, you know, there are only a handful of writers whose effectively every byline I try to read Chris Rufo is one of them and has been for the past few years now. And that's because He's doing what very few others are doing. He, yes, he's a commentator. Yes, he can get into the political weeds. He, he closely follows the primary, the Republican Party politics also. But he's much more than that. He is an activist and an investigative journalist. And the kind of pieces that he has been able to produce, which he has now been able to effectively combine into a grander and more far-ranging book is something that very few on the right do. There are very few actual investigative journalists remaining in America, let alone on the political right. Chris Rufo is one of them, and the amount of whistleblowers who have come to him when it comes to blowing the, sounding the alarm on critical race theory, the, the gender ideology metastasis, and, and all of this for the past few years has really just been remarkable. So once again, please do go ahead and check out his actual book, America's Cultural Revolution. If you have not already picked up a copy, you definitely should. It is Indispensable reading, I can definitely tell you that. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.